Happy Easter. Good morning. It's Resurrection Sunday. My name is Troy, and I'm one of the pastors here at Kettlebrook. I want to welcome you again as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because when Jesus Christ rose from the grave all those years ago, the world was changed. And the world continues to be changed by what happened and what continues to happen in our midst. How many of you are familiar with the uh, concept of the escape room? You understand what this is? It's kind of a new form of entertainment, a business model where basically you pay someone to lock you in a room for an hour. Okay, with some of your friends hoping that you're family and hoping you'll still be friends when you come out an hour later. But basically you get you get shoved into this room and you pay for this. And then there's a bunch of clues in the room that you have an hour to figure out, put together and then unlock all these different locks that get you out of the room. It's a little bit like Lord of the Flies, sort of. Anyway, um, Stephanie and I had our, our first chance to do this about a year ago with some family, and we went down and had um, an opportunity to, to, to do this, and um, we had confidence going in. We had two doctors, and everybody in the room had a college education, okay? And so we had this expectation that we were going to, to, to nail this and get out of this room. Um, we did not, okay? And we actually have the picture of shame here. This is us uh, afterwards. Stephanie's still smiling. She, she's look at her. Anyway, um, winning is overrated, is what I said there. Anyway, so so we didn't make it out. One of the cool things about this, though, is that there's a facilitator of the room who watches over the room, and you can kind of communicate to if you need to get like a hint or something in the room. Well, they we didn't ask for a lot of hints. We were too stubborn, but the facilitator was able to come in afterwards and kind of help us figure out where we blew it. Okay, and where we really messed up was we didn't realize that there was we we had this plastic piece of meat. And I won't give you too much away because in case I don't want to spoiler alert in case you want to go to this room. But anyway, there was a plastic piece of meat that we had to rub on a picture on the wall because that's rational. (laughs) So that's what kind of got us caught up. But after it was explained to us, we, we were like, okay. We get that. Um, and I tell you the story because we had a chance to try to redeem ourselves this last uh, December. We went to our second uh, attempt at this same family. We, we went, so we're going to try this again. We went to a different place, different room. And before we get, went in there, you know, I'm fairly competitive. And so I asked the question before, and I said, hey, has anyone ever gotten out of this room without asking for any hints? And the guy's like, No. No one's got out of the room without asking for any help from the facilitator. I'm like, all right. And so we kind of agreed that we were not going to do that. And you want to guess what happened? We didn't. Didn't ask one clue. And got out. With 11 minutes to spare. Boom! Then you're like, okay, wow. That's, uh, and that's my nephew JT. He's holding the sign backwards on purpose. It's hilarious. Anyway, um, so, so here's why I tell this story. Because what happened was when we were in a place, we didn't ask any clues. We were in a place where we ran out of what we were going to do next. Somebody in the room said, what if we take this random piece of object and rub it on this random shelf? Because of what we had experienced in the first room, that's exactly what we needed to do because there was a magnet in there. And it opened a whole other room. We ended up going one right after the other after that and getting out of the room. It was so awesome. I tell you that story because we, we didn't see that second room the same as the first because of what had happened to us, of what we experienced in the first room. And I want to make a case this morning 
that the resurrection of Jesus Christ can have the same effect on our lives. That once we've been exposed to the resurrection of Jesus, that we're going to look at things differently, that we will not be able to see things the same as we once saw them. And we're going to look at a narrative account of the life of Jesus and his resurrection this morning. And I understand that in a crowd this size, in a gathering this large, that you may be coming to Easter for different reasons, from different perspectives and different approaches. So I want to address three different ones that you may be coming from. And there may be others, but I want to focus on three. Some of you may be coming this morning and you're, you're going to probably approach Easter as what I'm going to call a skeptic. And so maybe you're here because, you know, family asked you to come with, but you're, you have a hard time believing that some ancient dude rose from the dead. You weren't there and nobody that you know was there to see that. So you're skeptical. I want to let you know, first of all, you are, if that's you, you're, you're in the room. You're welcome here. I also want you to know that you're not alone in this room and you would not have been alone if that's what you thought when this happened originally. So that's if you're a skeptic. Second group of people, you may be coming here this morning and you may believe in God. You may be familiar with Jesus, um, but you approach maybe Easter not as a skeptic, but as a sinner. And I use that word just to kind of encapsulate this approach where you know about God, but you have some things that you have done that you cannot really get rid of. And so you struggle to participate in the celebration and the hope that is offered in the resurrection. Now, if that's you here this morning, you see yourself from that sinner's perspective, I want to say, first of all, you're welcome here. Second of all, you're not alone in the room, and you're not alone when this originally happened. Third group. Some of you may, may actually have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Believe it. Um, you're not a skeptic. You don't see yourself as a sinner, but you're scared. And you're scared because you know God is calling you to step out. And yet you're afraid to do so. I want to let you know you're not alone in the room and you would not have been alone when this first happened as well. The good news is this. No matter how you step into this gathering this morning, the resurrection can completely change the way that you see the world and the way that you see yourself. So to do that, I want to look at the scriptures with you. So grab a Bible and open up to Mark chapter 16. There should be brown Bibles underneath the chairs right in front of you. If you're visiting or a guest, would strongly encourage you to grab one of those and follow along with me as we read through the gospel narrative account uh, according to Mark. And as we open to Mark chapter 16, page 722, uh, I want to tell you that the gospel of Mark was written by a guy named, not Mark, but John Mark. And he was... According to historians, he was very close to the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul. And most historians believe that the Gospel account of Mark is the earliest that we have, and and that it was probably because John Mark was hearing it right from Peter's mouth. Now, when we come upon chapter 16, what we've got is a tough, we're in a tough spot, because Mark had spent the, the bulk of his Gospel making a point that Jesus was the Messiah or the Christ. When you hear Jesus Christ, that's a word that means Messiah. It's a term that we don't use or really understand that much today. It is a term, I want you to think of king. Because the Hebrew people were waiting for a Messiah or a king that was going to rule over not just them, but over the entire world. And Mark has spent significant amounts of time in his gospel saying that Jesus is the Messiah. Now the problem comes in towards the end of the account where instead of ruling or reigning, he is betrayed by those closest to him. He's abandoned. He is handed over and arrested. He is flogged, spit on, mocked, ridiculed, and put on a cross, dies, and is in a tomb, which is where we open up chapter 16. I'm going to read the first 15 verses with you. Before I do that, I'd like to pray. 
Gracious Father, thank you for these words. Although they were written a long time ago, they apply to us still today. Although they were life-changing then, they are still life-changing this morning. Help us to have ears to hear. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who's going to roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. And they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You were looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go. Tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now there's a footnote here. It says, the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have the rest of these verses. I'm going to read a few anyway. Verse 9, when Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping. When they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they did not believe it. Afterward, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. These returned and reported to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. So, I want to start with skeptics. If you're here this morning, you might uh, approach Easter as a skeptic or know somebody who doesn't want to address that. Because if you are, you would not be alone here in the room and you would not be alone at the time when this happened because even Jesus' disciples were skeptics. I want you to, I want you to, I want to show you just a couple of words. These are, these are from a couple chapters earlier in, in the Gospel of Mark. This is Jesus telling his disciples, he, Jesus, said to them, his disciples, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant, and they were afraid to ask him about it. Maybe he knew they were afraid, and so a chapter later we find this. Jesus says this, We're going up to Jerusalem, he said to his disciples, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him, spit him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later he will rise. Okay? So Jesus told his disciples twice, very recently here, Hey, uh, this is going to happen, and three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. Uh, I need to tell you something, though. Third day comes, and nobody's like, Hey, hey, today's the day when Jesus rises from the dead. And his disciples aren't saying that. Nobody's saying that. Why? Because they were, they were skeptical of even those words. They did not expect Jesus to rise from the dead. I, I think a lot of times we're in... 2018, and we say to ourselves, well, we're, we're far more intellectually advanced than those people way back then. They thought the world was flat, okay? They didn't know their left hand from their right hand. They would believe just about anything. That's not the case. Nobody in this context was expecting Jesus to rise from the dead bodily, even those who he said exactly that's what he's going to do. The Greeks and the Romans actually thought that death was a liberation of soul from the body, 
And the Jews didn't believe in resurrection except at the end of time. And so here we find his disciples are all hiding. And the women are going to, a, going to the tomb with one purpose. To anoint a dead body. That's what they're anticipating. Here's a question. Why? Why did no one listen to what Jesus has said? Because they, they were skeptical about this. They themselves were. So the women, they go, they head to the tomb, and on the way they're like, oh yeah, who's going to roll the stone away? It's huge. And it's now cut into the groove, and so to get it back up out is going to be like impossible. And they're hoping that someone's going to be nearby. But when they get there, it's already rolled away. And they go in with spices, expecting to find a dead body of Jesus. They don't find a dead body. They find a young man dressed in white who says, don't be alarmed. I bet. I bet that's what he said. We climb into a tomb. There's a young man sitting there glowing white. You need a clean pair of pants, don't you? Okay? He says, don't be alarmed. He says, Jesus is he's not here. Now, something, if we're skeptical, something, a couple things I want to point out here. One is, is that Mark mentions these three ladies who go three times just in chapters 15 and 16. He uses Mary Magdalene, Mary, mother of Joseph, and then Solomon. He mentions these names three times. And I think it's, it's important for at least a couple reasons. The first reason this is important is because Mark is not prone to using specific names. If you went through the Gospel of Mark and kind of page through the headers, what you'll find is lots of um, titles like this. The faith of a Syrophoenician woman. The rich young ruler. The healing of a, of a deaf man. The healing of a blind man. Like the, He doesn't use names and titles, but here in th- three times, he mentions these gals specifically by name. Why? Because he wants people to know, if you want to know what happened, these are the gals. They were there. They saw it. Ask them. They're still alive. Now, the other reason why I think it's important for us to recognize this is that Mark mentions these three women. And women, I, I just want to let you know something. This is not, uh, your testimony would not have been valid back then. Contextually speaking, ladies, you just didn't have authority to have good testimony back then. And so, so Mark says these three women were the first witnesses when their witness was not even considered valid. Some people say, well, this story was made up. Obviously, the early church made it up. If you make it up, you don't have women. Let alone in verse 9, you got Mary Magdalene, who has had seven demons driven out of her like, she, like she's more credible now. Oh, yeah, go ask Mary Magdalene. Okay, like you, you want to put her in the, in the spot of kind of having authority on this. Okay. Why, why would Mark write, make this up and write it this way? He didn't make it up. This is what happened. That's why he wrote this this way. Another thing I want to address is that little footnote in that line between verses 8 and 9. It says the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have verses 9 through 20. And see, so if you're here today and you're skeptical, you, you, you'd be going, this is what I'm talking about. Like the Bible doesn't even know what it believes. It's got a footnote there. A couple notes on that. First of all, there's only a couple of these in Scripture where it says this, you know, we didn't, the early witnesses don't have this. Secondly, there's nothing in these uh, verses that we don't find elsewhere attested to in Scripture. Thirdly, I think this increases the integrity of the witness. Here's why. It's basically saying we have so many early manuscripts that we can compare them. And every historian worth their grain of salt is going to acknowledge that the, the New Testament is so widely attested 
that it has so much evidence, so much evidence close to the dates when things happened, they wished every historical event was like that. And here we see, we can compare these and say, well, the earliest, earliest ones that we have don't have this chunk. Probably, I don't, I don't know for sure why, probably it could be because the Codex of Mark, had, this was maybe the back part of it, and it got beat up so much it got lost. And so someone maybe filled in some of that based on the oral tradition that they knew. I don't know that. I'm just saying. There's so many, so many accounts here that we have to acknowledge the authenticity and the integrity of the accounts. Now, but let's just say that you're still skeptical and you say, this is what I'm talking about. Okay, let's say someone made this up. Again, this is not how you make up a resurrection account. Uh, Christy shared with me this week. Um, she said when she was younger, she played saxophone and her parents made her practice. But sometimes she didn't and she lied about it. One time? It was just one time? You liar. You are a liar. So she, she insisted that she had practiced. I guess one time she insisted, lied to her parents. They had said, hey, you didn't practice. We can hear that thing squawking like a duck and you didn't, you didn't do it. So she said, yes, I did. Yes, I did. Yes, I did. So her dad went and checked the reed. Dry as a bone. You liar. If you're going to make it up, wet the reed. That's what my kids do when they say they brush their teeth. Now they know that at least they have to go in there and run the water on it. Because before we grab it and be like, you didn't brush your teeth. Would you blow dry it when you're done? You liars. If you're going to lie about it, make it up. Make it a good lie. You, if you're going to lie about the resurrection, this isn't how you do it. You say, hey, demon-possessed lady saw it. Huh? And then you don't say that, oh, they went and told the disciples and they're all weeping and mourning. They're supposed to know better. And then you don't say that they don't believe. After they hear from people, we saw Jesus. They don't believe it. Look at this. This next slide. When they, this is verses 11, 13, and 14. When they heard that, that Jesus was alive, she had seen him, they did not believe it. These returned and reported the rest. They did not believe them either. And then Jesus comes back and rebukes them for their stubborn refusal to believe. They refused to believe. You know what? Paper was not easy to come by back then, folks. So if you're going to make something up, write it different. Say some dude saw him, and then say that everyone believed and just launch this amazing movement. Because what we have to do is we have to say, this is what we see that they said happened. And then we have to ask, well, how did this group of denying, unbelieving folks start some kind of a movement that's, in, that's impacted? That's why you're sitting in the room today. How did that happen? What happened between this and this? They saw Jesus Christ. That's what happened. They really did see him. He rose from the grave. And it launched a life-changing movement that still impacts every, people all over the world today. If you're here and you're skeptical, you're not alone. Jesus' disciples were skeptical too. And the angel said to the women, he said, see where they laid him. Look, look for yourself. And so my challenge for you is if you're here and you're skeptic, you're a skeptic, that's what my challenge is. Look, take a look for yourself. Don't read the troll, uh, the, the troll post blog things like... Read this. Just read one of the Gospels. Just recently I was with a, a, a young couple and talking to them and, and processing through um, their life and things. And, and the guy had said, you know, he, um, he's like, yeah, I know. I know kind of about 
the Bible and stuff. I grew up a little bit going to church and stuff, so I know the stories. And I said, do you? He says, yeah. I said, well, did you remember this one? He's like, oh, no, I don't know that one. I'm like, oh, okay, how about this one? He's like, I don't know that one either. Okay, so I'm like, hey, why don't we do this? Why don't we read through Mark together? He's like, all right. I said, probably take you an hour. It's the shortest gospel. Let's read through it. So he read through it, and he came back. He's like, ah, there was a lot of stuff I didn't know. He's like, this is, this is different than I thought it was. He started to ask questions and dig in on his own, which is super encouraging. Because that's what the angels say, hey, take a look for yourself. Because here's the thing. I think that if you look, for, look at this for yourself, you may be surprised to find a piece of meat that you rub on a wall. You didn't think that was how it worked. But then now you can't see things the same anymore once you do your own investigation. So that's what my challenge would be if you're here in that category. Second category. Some of you approach the resurrection as people I, I categorize as sinners, um, meaning that you come and you go, I can't, I can't participate in the joy and the hope and the freedom of the resurrection of Jesus because I know God, but like he can't possibly have forgiven me for what I have done. Now for you, uh, scholar James Edwards and author Tim Keller and, and, uh, says this. He says there is a word of grace in us for us in this account. And I want to show it to you. It's very simple. It's two words. It is in verse 7. The angel says to the woman these words. He says, go tell his disciples and hear the two words. And Peter. Go tell his disciples and Peter. He's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you'll see him just as he told you. Now this is another reference to Mark 14, which is an, another reference to Jesus talking about his resurrection. Jesus told them just a couple chapters earlier, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, not me. Not me. You guys know how that one played out? Not so good. In Jesus' darkest time of trial, Peter denied even knowing Jesus three times after being told that's what he was going to do. He still did it. But there is a word of grace for us in this. He says, the angel says, go tell his disciples and Peter. And Peter. And Tim Keller says, you know, if you, if you were one of the disciples and Mary came and said, hey, Jesus said, go to Galilee, he's going to meet you there. What would Peter have said? He would have said, you guys go. He can't, he can't possibly mean me. And so he says... Go tell his disciples and Peter. This is a word of grace for us as sinners. If, if he's already been forgiven, Jesus is like, I'm going ahead of you. For you, a, you traitor, you backstabber, I've already gone ahead of you. I've already forgiven you. There's a word of grace. And think about this. Jesus doesn't go to chastise them in, in Galilee. He goes to commission them. He goes to these cowardly, fickle traitors, and, and says, I'm going to send you out and go. This is grace. If Peter can be forgiven, so can you. If Peter can be forgiven, so can I. And once we experience that kind of grace, we won't see the world the same anymore. See, what happens is that we, many of us have this lens through which we see the world. It's been flavored by things that we've done in the past. We wish we could go back and redo them. We cannot go back and redo them. So what we do is we try to hide those things. We tuck them away. We, we, we have massive shame about those things back there. 
Maybe what we do is we um, try to wash them clean as best as we can by maybe doing good things that outweigh and, and tip the scale in our favor, but we can't do that. It just doesn't seem to be enough. It's never enough. The good news of the gospel of the resurrection of Jesus says that he's enough. That he has exchanged our stains in the past with his spotlessness, our sins for his righteousness, our imperfections for his perfection. Jesus has done the hard work of dying the death that we deserve, paying the debt that we owe to give us freedom that we do not deserve. And the resurrection is proof the check has cleared. You know, I'm I'm pretty sure that the reason that Peter becomes this passionate leader in the movement of followers of Christ is because almost more than anybody else he experienced in this moment, grace of such a deep, deep level. He knew that this movement was not going to be based on his goodness. It was on Christ and his goodness. That same grace that Peter received is extended to anyone who would receive it. Any one of you who who are here today who need that word of grace, Jesus Christ went to the cross to provide it. So if you're here and and, and maybe that's the place where I want want you to put yourself in, put your name where Peter's name is. As if the angel were to say to you, no, go. Jesus has gone ahead of you, filling your name because he's gone to the cross ahead of you so that you may experience Him and see Him as He is one day. That is great news. That is great news. Thirdly, if you're here and you're maybe not skeptic, maybe not sinner per se, maybe you're scared, you're not alone, and you were not alone back then. Verse 8 says that trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They were told to tell the disciples they didn't tell anybody. Why? Because they were afraid. Now, the resurrection doesn't instantly transform us from fearful to faithful, but we know from the other accounts the women eventually did. They did go and tell the disciples the impossible happened. They stepped out and risked that humiliation, doubt, mockery, but they shared. They did share. A few weeks back, I had the opportunity to take uh, my five children to Skateland, which is like a skate, like an indoor roller skate place over by Cedarburg. Probably some of you know what that is. It was the first time we had been there. I, I thought it was a Sunday night. I'm going to take my kids away from the house, give my wife a little time to herself. It took uh, one of um, their uncles with us, and so I had some help. It was great. Anyway, so we get to Skateland, we get through, we pay, and then we get the skate rental. And then I take the five children over, and four of them, guess what they need? Help. Lots of help. Dad, I need to tie this tighter. Can you help me tie it tighter? Yes. So we spent about 95 minutes tying everyone's roller skates on. No, I'm, I'm exaggerating. It took. It seems like it always takes forever. So we get all our skates on and get ready to take to the floor. And, and some people are just out there like, you know, like going backwards and doing the thing. And, and our kids start to go out there. Well, Ephraim, he's my six-year-old. This is kind of his first time, if you would, in a, in a place like this. And he has limited experience on roller skates to begin with. And so he's on the carpet and he's checking it out like little bit by little bit, walking on the carpet's not too bad. And he wants to try to get on the floor. I think he bites it a couple times before he gets out there. Well, he gets on the floor and he falls down. Okay, and so he gets up and then, you know, he did it again. He fell down again and then he did it again and again. Then he until you found the wall. He's like, ah, the wall. And so he spent about 45 minutes like this, going all the way around by the wall like this, still falling, still falling. Eventually he got enough confidence. He's like, I don't need this wall. I'm going to go out and start skating. 
And I exaggerated when I said 95 minutes before. I am not exaggerating when I tell you he fell over 100 times. Every other step was a fall, and he kept getting up. Every step, fall down, fall down, fall down, until about two hours later, this was his jam. There it is. That's right. And he bit it right after that. No, I'm just kidding. You know, I think that sometimes if we're following Jesus, what we find ourselves doing is having skates on but not wanting to get on the floor. We have our skates on, but we're like, we don't want to go out there in case we fall down. We might be embarrassed. Or, or, or maybe we take to the floor, but we are just going to go like, I'm hugging this wall. I'm hugging this wall. Jesus tells his disciples, go. The angel says, go tell the other disciples. And then at the end, verse 15 here, he says, go into all the world and preach the good news. And if you don't, let's just say we don't buy that account because it's not maybe added later. It's three other times in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Or sorry, Matthew, Luke, and John and in Acts. Same thing. Go preach the good news to all the world. I think sometimes we're afraid. And again, Jesus takes these unfaithful, stubborn, fearful, bewildered disciples and he commissions them. He says, you go. But it's not about, you know what, it's great, it's not about them, it's about him. That's why they're able to go. Uh, sometimes people will say to me, they'll say, Troy, I really struggle to share my faith. And then I tell them, okay, so stop. Stop trying to share your faith. It's not that impressive. Share the good news about Jesus. Jesus did not command his disciples, go into all the world and preach about your faith. He says, preach the good news. The good news is that Jesus himself was resurrected from the grave. That he has accomplished what we cannot. Sometimes I think people are are reluctant to share their faith because, like, well, I just don't know if I have a strong enough story or a good enough, like, witness, or maybe I'm a hypocrite, maybe I don't know enough the Bible, blah, blah, blah. I hear it all the time. Blah, blah, blah. That's right. That's what I'm talking about. And I I hear it as blah, blah, blah because it's... It's partially because we're not willing to get on the floor. It's not willing, we're not willing to take a, a fall and get back up. To live the adventure that Christ is calling us to live. As Jesus rose from the dead for the skeptics, the sinners, and the scared. And we are called to proclaim the good news. That the message of the gospel, the resurrection of Christ, still changes lives today. And so I know I, I'm... I'm I do this for a living. And you might say, well, that's what you do for a living. So I want to have you hear that Jesus Christ is still changing lives today from someone besides me. Hopefully you're going to hear it from each other uh, over lunch today. But Ed, why don't you come on up here? i got a friend of mine named Ed Lopez. Can we give him a, a warm welcome? Kettlebrook welcome. <laughs> Take a seat. Ed, this is, a, this is just an easy Sunday to kind of get up front and talk in front of everybody. So uh, no pressure. Um, no. The question I asked Ed was, I said, Ed, how is the resurrection of Jesus Christ changing your life? How has Jesus changed the way that you see the world? It's kind of funny how I end up here. Uh, When Troy asked me that question, it came in a form of an email. And I was in a meeting at work with 58 other people surrounding me, including my manager was sitting behind me. And I was like, "Eh, you know. 
I'm too busy, right, to answer that question, you know, right now. But then I felt compelled. I felt like I had to answer that question because I know that someone else might need, you know, that answer, you know. So I, I am going to read literally from my email what I answered to, um, to Troy on, on his question of how Jesus is changing my life. Okay. Uh, give me a second here. So this is what, how I answered that question. From a life of guilt and living without hope for salvation and condemned to hell that could come at any moment to a life of full of hope for eternal joy, free from guilt and complete forgiveness of my nature to sin through his sacrifice at the cross. This gives me peace in my heart and opens the door of heaven to me, even after all my sins. Jesus has given me peace. And that's what, how I answered that question. Amen. 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 One of the things that you had talked about, Ed, I don't know if you want to share or not, but just how much you travel. This was, this was playing out in the way that you travel. You travel all over, and you're on planes like for millions of miles a year on a plane. And Absolutely. I, I get to travel pretty much all over because of my work. So I'm always going somewhere. And believe me, it's, it's been a life of pure. And, and, and when he mentioned these three distinctive type of people that come today to the, our gathering, I will say I'm pretty much all three of them. I'm a sinner, right? I'm afraid. And, and what was the third one? Come on. He's not listening. He's not listening. He's skeptic. He's an ex-skeptic. All three combined into one. Okay? I, I, so I get to travel, and believe me, traveling for me was, it was the worst thing ever. And it was what I do, because uh, if I jump on a plane and the plane crash, I wasn't forgiven for my sins, and I was going direct to hell. So by, by learning about the sacrifice that Jesus Christ has done for us, and, and especially for a, a guy like me, it, it fills me of joy and, and peace that, that I've been forgiven by his sacrifice. Amen. Amen. Thanks, brother. Thank, Thank you. you for sharing. Thank you. Thanks again. Thanks again. So the resurrection still impacts the way that we see everything today. No matter how you approach this day, the resurrection has the power to change the way that you see the world and the way that you see yourself. I, I think I, I want to close with just the idea that <clears throat> I know I can only stretch the uh, escape room analogy so far, but I, I really feel like so often we are living with respect to our lives in, in, in a room that we're locked in to some extent. For the skeptic, it might be the room of doubt. For the sinner, it's the room of guilt. For the scared, it's the room of shame or, or fear. Sorry, it's fear. There is one key out of that room. Whatever room you are locked in in your life, his name is Jesus Christ. And the, the resurrection has the power to transform this, the skeptic into the supporter. The resurrection has the power to transform the sinner into a saint. The resurrection has the power to transform the scared into the sent. 
And that's why we rejoice to stay together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this amazing news. It's not just good news. It is great news that changes our hearts and our lives to this day. Father, we thank you that your son, Jesus, came to engage in the mess of this world. And not just to engage, but to redeem, to buy back, to win out, to unlock the guilt, the shame, the fear, the doubt. Father, help us to remember your reckless love that was demonstrated on the cross and proven through the empty tomb. Pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.